0: Before we start the show, I'd just like to say a huge thank you to everyone at Schmitt Spiel and Coiled Spring Games. They've been absolutely fantastic in helping us get our Taverns of Tirth and Thor review ready for the show. So thanks once again, and here we go. The Taverns of Tirth and Thor, Battle at Big Rock, and Untitled Goose Game. This is staying in Hong Kong. Dan. Yes. I'd like you and you alone to help me with a dilemma. It's a bit awkward because it involves Chris. Okay. Come sit on the couch. But but I I need your help. I need you to sort out a rift that's happened between me and Chris.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: So the other day, Chris very nicely and politely invited me round to his house
1: well, he's very nice, he's very polite, that doesn't surprise me.
0: That's what I thought as well, Dan. Oh. That's what I used to think. Oh dear. And while we were there, I went to the co-op and I bought myself two of probably my current favourite beers, which are called um, Elvis Juice. It's called Elvis Juice. It's made by the Brewdog uh, Beer Brewery Company.
2: 100% freshly squeezed Elvis. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and um i bought a couple of those uh to go and drink while we were at uh, his neighbors playing board games and we had a lovely time such a lovely time in fact dan that i didn't drink all of my beers and i left one of them at chris's house okay okay standard story now a few days later chris comes up to me and goes oh oh that that beer you left in our fridge that was that was tasty yeah, I loved it, yeah. Oh, yeah, you know what I'm like about fruity beers. Yeah, I really love that. And I was like, oh, okay. So So you just helped yourself there, Chris, <laughs> to, <laughs> to the uh, beer I accidentally left in the fridge. And then, and then, Dan, to make matters even worse, I could have let that slide. I could have let that slide. Chris comes to mine last weekend and buys a pack of four Thatchers and then as he's taking them home, because he hasn't drunk them all, he leaves one in the fridge and goes, there you go, that's one for you. (laughs) Thatcher's cider.
2: Balance is restored to the universe.
0: (sighs) And I just... Dan, you've got to you've got to sort this out you've got to mediate this
1: issue well, f- well fortunately i i mean I have experience in uh conflict management so you've you've come to the right place here so i th- i think i think firstly it's it's important for you both to listen to each other to listen to what the issue is okay, and understand where that conflict is coming from. So, Chris, Mm. you have to understand that Sam bought these beers because they are his favourite beers. And he looked forward to the next time he came to yours so he could again enjoy the beer Mm. in your company.
0: Mm.
1: And, Sam, you have to understand that these are very tasty beers. And so Chris saw them, (laughs) saw the joy it had brought you, and so had a taste. And then thought he needed to repay that favour by leaving a Thatcher's. No the issue that you have Sam is is twofold firstly you you are you are questioning whether or not it was correct or not for chris to drink the beer that you had left in his fridge and secondly is a thatchers mm. an equivalent offering
0: can i can i just can i just add to this a bit more yes, information not only did he leave a thatchers but he also left an innocent smoothie in my fridge just okay. to sweeten the deal
1: okay now first before I pass any kind of judgment on this, Chris, obviously you had already decided that you were offering the Thatchers to Sam. With the innocent yes. smoothie, had did you leave that with a belief that you would go back to it or were you leaving that for uh the Turner household?
2: I didn't even know I'd left it until Sam told me.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so my my view, okay, Sam, when you left the beer in Chris's fridge. Mm. Yeah. You, at that point, lost all possession of it. Chris, hey, it's in his hey. fridge. It's in his fridge. He was free <sighs> to drink from it. Now, the second point is, is a Thatcher's equivalent value to your Elvish juice? Now, no. as a cider drinker and not a beer drinker, <laughs> one may assume that I may favor the cider over the beer. But alas... I am not a Thatcher's fan. <laughs> and from hearing you speak about Elvis juice, I do not believe that a Thatcher's cider is of equivalent value to your Elvis juice. So I'm going to say two things. Firstly, a Thatcher's was not equivalent. However, Thank you. Chris was under no obligation to make okay. that offering to you. And so he should be commended for making that gesture, even if the gesture was not well-received.
2: No, I mean, admittedly, Sam, you'd rather drink that single can of Thatcher's than the crate of root beer that Peter Willington left in your fridge. <laughs> I, I, I was going to
0: bring up the the legacy that is the things that Peter Willington leaves in my fridge and never drinks. Well, Whenever, whenever he's here, he'll always buy something like a crate of root beer, drink one, and then just be like, well, well you can have the rest. Or, that four-litre bottle of Old Rosie that you bought oh my <laughs> like, drank a little bit of. Because he's the kind of person who would just be like, oh, I just fancy a little bit of that.
1: Yeah, and then he'll have some of everyone else's drink. <laughs> <laughs> but oh my view, my Sam, if I usually if I were to bring drinks to yours um, and I were to leave them in the fridge, next time I came to it, provided it's, like, in the next couple of days or something... I would hope there was something there that I could drink. But if it wasn't, mm. then that is absolutely fine. I made the decision to leave it there. That is the risk that I take. If it's still there, brilliant. Fantastic. I can still have that. Lovely. If it's not, that's on me. I
0: I've, I don't know about you, Chris, but I really enjoyed the first episode of Judge Frost. Uh, oh yeah, I was literally just thinking that. With an ice-cold gavel. <laughs> it's Justice Reign Supreme.
1: All All cases have to be cold-based. They have to involve a cold (laughs) feature, like a refrigerator. (laughs) Uh, Well, there you go. Session adjourned. Is that right? Is that the right thing to say?
0: Case (laughs) closed. Case closed. Case closed. Uh, That's probably still not what judges say. (laughs) Overruled. Uh, No, that's a lawyer. Carry on. We're not stopping until you say something a judge would say. Sustained. (laughs) Yes, well done. <laughs> I'm, I'm like I'm like
1: like a minute away from just reciting all the lines from a few good men.
0: As we've already alluded to, Chris, you came round to my house
2: uh recently the weekend. I was summoned. You were, were you? Yes, yeah, that's what it felt like, Sam. Why? He said, "Chris, you've got to come round here now. We've got to play this." I summon you. Right. <laughs> he kept sending me pictures here's the unboxing it's waiting Oh, alright I did do that didn't I yeah you did do that yeah <laughs>
0: it's always quite to fun. be fair
2: Sam this does sound like a summoning I'm
0: starting to think Chris less and less enjoys my company now because <laughs> <laughs> he's drinking my beer replacing him with Thatcher's doesn't really feel like I invited him to my he's, house he's doing whatever
1: but... he can to break up this friendship he's like I took you good beer and I gave you Thatcher's
0: <laughs> yeah and now I've been summoned to his house to play a
2: new game. Uh, what a chore, eh? But it wasn't a chore, was it, Sam?
0: It wasn't a chore. Even, involved, even though parts of the game do involve random chores, like handing out drinks and washing dishes. And it is the new game from Wolfgang Walsh. It is The Taverns of Tiff and Thal. Hmm. Which, along with Quacks of Quedlingberg, is a, the strangest naming convention duo that I've ever heard of. I can only assume that he's starting to build up some sort of um connected wolfgang universe.
1: Like an like an alphabet of alliteration.
0: Yeah. He's got like the town of Quedlingburg, and now he's got the taverns of the Deep Valley, which is what Tirthenthal means. So he's got these like, these like two locations, and I can only hint that there's gonna be some like Wider game on in the horizon, like he's com- going to come out with some sort of expansion pack. He's got
1: big plans. Yeah,
0: there's going to be come out with some sort of expansion packs that links the towns of Quedlingburg and Tirthenthal together into one sort of hyper
2: game. <laughs>
1: it's it's the it's the MCU of the board gaming world. And yeah. all the,
2: and, and the people in this world they never actually talk to each other; they just do it all mentally. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so. This is The Taverns
0: of Teeth and Fall. And we very, very kindly um, uh, granted a copy of this uh, direct from Schmidt, Spiel, who um, uh, who sent us this copy from Germany, which is a great relief, uh, being that it's a language independent game <laughs> because I do admit my heart sank a little bit where this guy knocked on my door at seven o'clock in the morning and I came downstairs and in my dressing gown and he handed me this parcel from Germany and I was like... Oh, no. And I opened it up, and on the cover, it was like, Die Taverns und Tith and Thor. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> and then, like, before I unwrapped anything, I just quickly went on Board Game Geek. and just like, is Taverns a Tith and Thor language independent? Come on. Come on. Just like, yes. Yes, it is. And I was like, thank God. Got the knife out, ripped all open, opened up. And, my God, there is a lot in this box. There's a lot of game in this game. There is a lot of game in this game.
1: Is this the game that you unpacked it all and then sent us about like a 40-second video of you just scr- scanning the floor with all the pieces yeah. and it took about 40 seconds to cover it all?
2: Yeah. It was like when it was like what Peter Jackson does where the camera just flies over the Pelinor fields. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it was even trickier not having the English rules um with me at the time, because I wasn't quite sure because Taverns of Tearth and Fall is a, is a, hmm, how do you describe it? It's kind of part deck building game, part dice drafting game, but also part jigsaw. Um, so when you get the box and you start like popping things out of the cardboard... It's not immediately obvious that you need to keep the cardboard bits that remain to make up the frame of the, <laughs> frame of the jigsaw. And cause I only had the German rules at the time, I wasn't exactly sure of whether that little bit I popped out actually had some value yeah. later on in the game. Is this bag of silica also important? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so I'll, 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 I'll preface all of what I'm about to say with. If you are a fan of Wolfgang's work, uh, The Mind, Illusion, uh, Ganson Clever, Quacks of Quedlingberg, Bricks, Stop clever. Stop out so Clever, Dopelt so Clever, you will love Taverns of Tirthenfall as much as I absolutely adore it because it feels like definitely the culmination of where he's been going as a designer over the last few years. Whereas everything else was an exploration of a very, very specific rule set, be it um, deck building, but with tokens in of quedlingburg or dice drafting like in, in Ganshon Clever. Taverns brings all those lessons together into one gaming experience. Because how the game works is, everyone starts off with their own tavern in front of them, their own little pub. It's got these little row of seats at the top and then this little like bar area at the bottom and in between is, is sort of the space of the pub where the waitresses wander around and there's entertainers that come and um like keep the people in your pub happy and buying beer. And then to the sides you've got the entrances where uh, men come and deliver uh, like stocks of ale into your into your like warehouse, another one where a dishwasher's really hard at work. And it really feels like this board of of energy and excitement, really. It really feels like even before you've even started to do anything to it, it does feel like this living and breathing pub. And are these all, is this all kind of just uh, like flat? The the pieces are just kind of 2D, just flat on the table.
1: There's no kind of built 3D element to it.
0: Ima- imagine, imagine it like a jigsaw. So you start off with this like weird S-shaped piece of cardboard. And then as you're setting up the game, you slot in your tables at the top, you slot in your cash register, then you slot into another hole, this little monk that sits beside you, you slot in your bar and it all like comes together. Um, slowly but surely you start building up this area of the bar. And then alongside that, you also get, um, four dice, three dice of your color and a small deck of seven cards. And that's your like starting. Hand of cards, a bit like in the Star Realms, like everyone gets like the same starting hand of cards.
1: And do the do the pieces kind of just so I can get this right in my head? Do the pieces kind of mm-hmm. all go in the exact same space, or do you choose where to put the bar? And stuff like that? They, they they have their aco- selected allotted space.
0: Yes, yeah, so every single person's tavern is exactly the same at the start of the game, and so okay. is their and so is their deck that they get. So everyone starts off at the even sort of keel so how taverns actually works is in your deck you've got like basically your staff and the people who are visiting your pub and at the start of the game the people who visit your pub don't really give out much money they're just there for maybe a soup and a sandwich and a quick pint here or there so really the best thing you can do is start attracting better people to come and visit your pub. The better people who come and visit your pub, the more money that they will give you and then you can use that money to hire better staff or start upgrading areas of the pub that you go into. And how you do that is basically by dice drafting, so rolling dice and then putting those dice onto specific areas of your bar. So for example, if you put your dice onto the cash register you'll get one coin. Or if you put your dice onto your beer keg, you'll get one beer, and that beer might attract a fancier person to come into your establishment. And that fancy person will go into your deck, essentially. Or you might be able to spend your money, instead of upgrading the bar, you can spend your money on hiring a waitress who gives you an extra dice, or hiring a a bard to come and sing in your establishment, and therefore, like, entertaining some of your customers and getting you a bit of a higher reputation in the area. And so you're doing all these things on your turn, You, you this, this wonderful blend of buying things for your deck to make your deck um, um, have better functions within it to enable you to do more in your turn, but also trying to upgrade your tavern so when you're assigning dice to it, that the functions of those dice perform better. So instead of making one beer on a turn, something can make two beer. And because it all exists in this 2D jigsaw plane, that sense of upgrading is such a wonderful experience because you literally, Dan, if I say want to upgrade my cash register, you just pop out the little cash register, you turn it around, and you pop it back in. And then that's your new little cash register. Or... If you want to upgrade so you've always got a waitress that works in your pub, no matter what, you don't have to rely on that card coming out of your deck. You basically like kick out the dog. There's a little tile on it with a dog. And you kick out the dog, turn it over, and there's always a waitress that that goes there. Or if you always want an extra table for your patrons to sit at, you kick out the cat, and then you've got room enough to put a table in there, and you put it down. And it's just...
1: (sighs) So, so, from what, what you've said so far, this, I mean, to me, this is kind of there's a lot of obviously kind of resource management and the strategy of building up and improving your kind of bar area. And obviously, this isn't a single mm. play game. What, how, how does the interaction work between the different taverns?
2: What I quite like about it, Dan, is that it, what, um, what prevents that sense of analysis paralysis is in that dice drafting stage. You roll your dice and then you choose one and you put the rest on a little coaster, and you pass that coaster to your left, so you can only really strategize with the dice that's going to arrive from your player to the right and what they give you essentially and then you and I love that 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 interplay that dynamic of choosing where to put those dice and looking around the room, seeing the dice that are getting passed around and trying to work out okay well, it's looking very likely that um threes and twos are going to be what I'm going to have at the end. So that's going to, I can quickly start thinking about how I can best place these to either decide whether I want to focus on getting as much beer um, in the bank as possible, or as much money as possible. And in fact, what makes the game so delicious is it's a bit like when you're playing a video game and you've got to that point where you've got lots of skills in the bag and you're in that position, Oh, what do I upgrade? So I'm playing shadow of the tomb Raider at the moment. And I get my skill points, and I have to choose in one of three areas I can upgrade. And it's that wonderful sense of thinking: Well, what kind of landlord do I want to be? Do I want to be the one that is about trying to get as much money, or to about as getting as much of the higher quality of beer as possible? And these alternative strategies start start to present themselves. And in terms of what you were saying about what it's like with other players, it's looking around the room, seeing how other people are building their engines, and saying, actually, this is the kind. This is the type of landlord they're, they're being. Do I want to go down that route or do I want to be my own and distinct type of landlord? And the game gets really cutthroat. Like as Sam says, you kick the dog out, you kick the cat out. You get really cutthroat. And it, it actually this kind of class war starts to manifest because you're basically throwing out the riffraff and you're trying to attract as much nobles as possible mm. because the nobles give you 10 points. And getting as many of those... As possible to come and visit your bar, and even better, they don't each take up a table. You can stack them all on one table, which makes it even more cost-effective. They just stick together. They give you the most points. So actually, you're trying to, you're basically trying to convert your rundown local drinking pub into like a fancy gastro pub, yeah. basically. And it's just really, really interesting. Um, and it's one of those games where if you if you if you start to think about it, if you start thinking about it in an abstract sense place dice there, you get lost. But if you think about it logically, thematically speaking, it works really, really well. And and we played it and my partner was like, let's play it again and again. I think we played it three or four times. And and this is why Walsh is a genius and it's because he gives you so much with the game. In Quacks of Quedlingburg, I can flip the board over and there's a slightly advanced module on the other side. This game... There's like five modules in total. So, um when we ran um Sam and Lisa's Saturday night, um we just before bed we just flipped over the little module there and there's another there's another version of it there and it, it it's not a steep learning curve in that regard. Uh it, and I'm I'm still thinking about it now. I'm slightly envious of Sam as well because I'm thinking, "Oh yeah, I I really like Quack's of Quedlingberg, but this 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 has got something else here." And both both you can own both games, but there's something about this game that just kind of gets under your skin a bit, which I really, really like. And the fact that every new round, a new event reveals itself, a new player will come to the pub, which will give you uh, a little bit more spice to add to the overall flavouring of the game.
1: I, I do like the idea of the game, and this is just kind of those kind of board games in general, where you are competing with kind of the other people. There is that element of competition. However, you're not necessarily kind of attacking each other or affecting other people's games. So me and you, by the sense of me and you be playing, I'm working on mine with my own strategy. You're working with your own strategy. And obviously we're going to end up with various different point levels based on what we've done, but we're doing it in a collaborative environment. So we're not kind of, I'm not affecting your game and you're not affecting my game other than the dice that are kind of left.
2: Yeah. Other Um, than the dice.
1: But I like the idea of being in a situation where you're all competing but not in that
2: combative sense. And what I do like about it in particular as well is there's not one way that I can find so far to beat the game that, you know, that case of, oh, well, if I just do this strategy, I always win. There's always enough variability there.
1: Yeah, there's, there's not a, a, there's not a, a tactic you no. can do that it's kind great, of guarantees
2: a win. He's knocking it out of the park, this guy. Um, absolutely knocking it out of the park. And I am going to buy this, I think, for my family. I think they, my parents would really, really get stuck into this because, as you say, it's a nice little game. It's got a little bit of conflict there, but not so much that, you know, you're not going in and vandalising each other's pubs. You're not kind of running a mock there, really. So you've got your own safe little area in front of you, that, that kind of classic kind of engine-building game, which, I don't know, I seem to be playing quite a lot of at the moment, games like Brass and Scythe. Where you've got your own little machine here that you you work out the cause and effect. If I put something in there, I know exactly what's going to happen to spit this out here, and that satisfaction of that that kind of Newton's cradle, um, that that perpetual motion device, it just keeps going. If I if I if I get, put just enough fuel into it, it'll give me just what I need to eke out some kind of a victory, really. But one thing I want to say, Sam, I've got a great analogy. Mm. Your wife makes very good tiffin. Yes. I can,
1: I can confirm this is true.
2: She'll say, we'll get, I'll get like a wonderful message when she knows I'm coming around and she'll say, Chris, what do you want in your tiffin? Mm. And I'll just say, as usual, I'll say, as long as it's got Maltesers in it, Lisa, I'm happy. And, and sometimes you get those things and if you put them together, it just doesn't work. But what the taverns are tiffin for for me is, it's basically a tiffin. It is the kind of best bits of his work. And rather than creating a very yucky feeling in your mouth, mm. it just works beautifully in harmony.
0: It's it's very strange how it does that. I mean, the only analogy I came up with was based around Weetabix. So Lisa's Tiffin is a is a much better example for, for how that works. Um, the abiding feeling of Taverns is that I think about it a lot. Like after I play it, it just lingers around. Like, I just can't... Sometimes I just can't stop thinking about it. Because Quacks of Quedlingberg is fantastic in the moment. Taverns doesn't have that sort of emotion with it. Instead, looking around the table, everyone is locked in this wonderful um, sort of trance-like state where everyone is going right if I just move that dice there that will give me this amount of money but if I have this card here then that'll bring in this amount of beer which means I can buy that card which will mean that I'll get me that on the next turn and then this on the next turn and then I'll be doing that on the next. and what's wonderful about taverns is that you know that annoying thing that people do sometimes during their games when it's just like right I'm going to be doing this on my turn. I'm going to be moving forward five, which is going to get me this, which is going to buy me that, which is going to do this, and to all of you, I'm much better. That was a fun game of Twister. Yeah, that happens every time on Taverns, but you just sit there transfixed and just like, what sweet alchemy is this? Like, oh my good God. And that's the abiding feeling of that i have of taverns it's just this game that stays with you and even though it looks exceptionally complex and it feels like it has no right to stick together or even make sense of the game somehow he just manages to absolutely pull it off and if you're a fan of wolfgang wosch then this is a straight up recommendation You, you will you will love this game but then but if anything of what Either Chris and I have said sounds in the remotest bit compelling, then just know if you just jump into this game and just ease into it, like module by module, then slowly you'll you'll uncover this beautiful piece of board game design that that won't leave you alone. It will just it will just stay with you and just gently just ferment, ferment, yeah, just be part of your life in this in this wonderful way. It is. Not only an exceptionally complex game, but also an exceptionally well balanced game that's fair for everyone who gets to play.
1: So, you guys, I just got you to watch uh, the Jurassic World mm. short film, "A uh, Battle of Big Rock." You did. Uh, what did you What did
0: you think? What a What a viewing party!
1: What a you? It, it was. It was. We get together from all corners of the globe. Um, I mean, a very small corner's of a very large globe, but still the same. Um, to to watch things in silence, which is something Sam me and you've been doing for a long time.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I do. Remember, I I do look fondly on that time that you came all the way to Salford for business reasons.
1: Oh no! Oh yeah, I was in Salford for about two weeks, so it wasn't just like a day. I was working in Salford for like two weeks in the same building as Sam. I I was I was living in London. Sam's in Salford um i come up to salford for two weeks i've got i'm living in a hotel next door so we're in the same building what do you think how do you think me and sam kind of took advantage of 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 being in that same vicinity Two best friends in that vicinity what do you think we did to take advantage of that
2: there's some nice eateries and bars and stuff in the media city area so okay. i presume
1: well we, we maybe went for lunch we we kind of took advantage of us having our lunch breaks and like business lunch
0: well we did we did have lunch that's well, that's correct. We did yes. technically
1: have lunch. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We decided mm-hmm. to uh, sit at a very small table opposite each other again maybe yeah. playing a game or something like that something entertaining social. No 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 no. We both sat there yeah. on individual iPads and watched episodes of Breaking Bad individually mm-hmm. in silence. Oh my gosh. So like literally That's awful. Counting three, one, two, three, and press play just so we could watch it together and then discuss it after the episode had finished.
2: What, 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 I, why was? Why couldn't you watch it on the same screen? It was because
0: we were trying to finish watching the series. So we watched the finale together in my flat, but basically we didn't have enough time in the evenings to get the series watched. So we had right. to watch it during lunch breaks in silence. First world problems, eh?
1: And we, we do have a history of watching uh, TV shows together. We we used to watch a lot yeah. of Lost together.
0: So in terms of viewing parties, that's what me and Dan did just before we jumped on the podcast, was to start watching Battle of Big Rock together on um uh, Chris, has, ju- Chris has just watched it as well. I know. Brilliant. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because Jurassic Park is one of my favourite films. Two came out, which I actually quite like. Um, I think that gets a, a bad ride.
1: Two is okay.
0: It's better than you think it is. Yeah. It's just the fact that it followed one. Yeah. Three is just three. <laughs> um, and then was there one after three? Or no, was there was there, there was a was lot, lot of
1: rumours that they were gonna go and do a fourth, but that it kind of ended it. I think because three did not go down particularly well. Um, it was no. just a real kind of low when you compare for me as well. Kind of Jurassic Park was kind of a formative film in my childhood. It's kind of like something i remember kind of just being in awe of and to this day i feel think i still think it's an incredible film yeah, yeah. and then the third one was a bit pants
0: the third one is just like but what if the velociraptors could talk yeah what, what if we... <laughs> we could
2: talk to them yeah, but it's got but it's got William H. Macy. It's got Sam Neill, who I love. Sam Neill comes Yeah, right. but when William H. Macy is your lead on an action
0: film about dinosaurs. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> William H. Macy and Sam Neill are your kind of
2: <laughs> leading heartthrobs. You're kind of like, hmm. Sam Neill. Oh, I love Sam Neill. Hunt for the Wilder People. One of my favourite films.
0: And then Jurassic World came out. And then it wasn't we could talk to the Velociraptors. Chris Pat was having like basically sit down meals with them. And um, that was all right. I
1: really enjoyed Jurassic World. I mean, I watched Fallen Kingdom. I didn't. I didn't go to the cinema and see it. Um, and that was mainly because it didn't. It didn't sell itself particularly well. It kind of the 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 plot was: we need to go back to the island. And immediately, I'm kind of like, oh, that sounds a bit yeah. forced. Well, you have just made up a reason to get back to the island. And then I watched it. It wasn't great. It felt really transitional because it felt like they want to get to the point where we're now leading into the Battle of Bidrock short film, uh, written and directed by Colin Trevorrow, Mm. who, um, I'm not sure if he wrote the first Jurassic World, I know he directed the first Jurassic World. This is a spoiler for the ending of Jurassic World 2, Fallen Kingdom. Um, Dinosaurs are now on the mainland, mainland United States of America. Um, And that's the jumping off point going forward, which is, I think, where they've wanted to get to, as a as a series pretty yeah. much from the start that's that was always gonna me the end goal um fallen kingdom was a bit of a just of a way of okay we need to do this just to get them there and then we'll really kick off and do what we want to do which leads us into battle of big rock which is a short film it's like an eight minute film uh, made by colin trevorrow who is making the third jurassic world um who they've recently announced will be starring the three actors from the original film uh Ian Malcolm, played by uh, Jeff Goldblum. Uh, Sam Neill and uh, Laura Dern are all going to be in there. And yeah, I watched the um, short film and what struck me...
0: Was it Toby throwing stuff from the other side of the room? Yeah, yeah. Toby, stop it. I'm trying to watch an eight minute movie. Uh, But it is Toby related. Um...
2: He got a crossbow for his birthday. (laughs) (laughs)
0: It's a traditional present for a two-year-old.
1: I I did find elements of Battle of Big Rock quite scary, which I haven't really felt uh, properly in any of the Jurassic Park films, really since the first one, maybe the second one, but I was quite young. But there were there was an element of kind of danger, real real danger, um, and that's partly due to the, there is the kind of a sequence in 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 the short film where there is a baby who is kind of at risk, and that maybe that just tweaks something in my brain, kind of like. Dad mode kicked into gear, and suddenly that's a horrifying thought. I got a sense of danger, and actually, it was quite scary, which is which I really like. I think that's the way it should be going. It can be fine for kids and stuff like that, it can't be kind of horror film. A Jurassic Park film needs to have an element of scares and danger and tension.
2: It's tricky because it's kind of, in some respects, predictable because you've got eight minutes, it's not going if they're going to do a short film on. In within the Jurassic world universe, it's not going to be a mood piece. you're expecting there to be that equilibrium disruption um and then that process of reparation and the fact that it's going to occur in a very compressed period of time means that you are expecting that kind of that that kind of peak and trough really of that. What I found particularly striking quite interesting about it was just the use of long takes which is really quite Mm. nice, where the camera kind of just moves around and you really feel you're in that cramped uh, camper van, um, which is this family on holiday camping. And and seeing it through their eyes, narrated by the child, who's just explaining, okay, that one's the herbivore. That's the Allosaurus. I found very interesting and quite nice and very Spielbergian.
1: It's a real kind of... Like a throwback, a callback to in the original film where they're all sat in the cars and it all starts to happen. You've got the cameras in the cars with them looking out yeah. the windows at the That's dinosaurs. And it kind of there is like kind of a throwback to that, I think.
0: I actually felt like Battle of Big Rock was probably the closest we've come from a genuine sort of Jurassic Park experience in a in a long, long time. I don't think we'll ever get that sort of experience again. But what made Jurassic Park and uh, The Lost World so interesting is when it was people were trying to deal with dinosaurs, whilst at the same time trying to understand the dinosaurs whilst they were doing it. So, trying to essentially learn how they behave. And those films are all about the fact that life finds a way. And you sometimes you cannot predict behavior and sometimes you cannot um, prevent everything that, that that's happening. So suddenly when you introduce characters in Jurassic Park 3 and Jurassic World that can talk to dinosaurs, it's kind of like, well, didn't really feel like there's any tension anymore because suddenly we're, we're able to understand. And the only reason that... Dinosaurs are any threat to us anymore is because we genetically engineered a dinosaur. And that's what Battle of Big Rock kind of resets in a way is the fact that we're no longer in this sanitized environment where we have control over the dinosaurs anymore. They exist with us in a natural space. So it's a lot more like um Jurassic Park in that sense where there is a distinct lack of understanding between the two, the two species. So when this when um, stuff starts going down in Battle of Big Rock, it feels a lot more tense because the family who are trying to fight off and who are trying to survive this dinosaur attack, they don't know how to deal with it. It's all like instinct and it's all like last minute thinking and really edge of your seat stuff because it's just a wild animal um a very very powerful wild animal and if this is the way the series is going to go like examining what life would be like coexisting with dinosaurs in the wild then i think that's really 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 interesting it could almost like it almost sounds a bit like a world war z style book you know just little diary entries of people like and their encounters yeah with dinosaurs like at the end of the um short film actually is one of my favorite bits where it's like lots of this home movie footage yeah. of people like a, like a, a small girl being chased around by those like little chicken dinosaurs and
1: it's really quite funny
0: <laughs> some people getting married and throwing some doves in the air and then suddenly this like pterodactyl flies it's probably not a pterodactyl and someone will shout at me for like oh no it's a tetradon, <laughs> or whatever uh flies out the air and kills one of the doves like that to me is super interesting like that like we've not we don't understand the nature anymore we're not controlling it we're not creating anything new so this is the world we live in now like how do we find that balance like that is super interesting so there's another dan on the podcast this time uh excuse me yeah there is their name is Dan Hughes. Oh, yes, I know Dan. Oh. At D-G-H-U-G-H-E-S-28.
1: Uh, they're, they're, they're our rivals.
0: D-G Hughes. They're our rivals.
1: They're, they're our Charity Miles rivals. Oh. They oh, started a the Charity Miles League in competition with us.
2: But mm. everyone wins. That's perfect.
0: Yeah, yeah. But still. Uh. mm um so what so do we want this question or not? I didn't realise that. Go for it. Lay it on us. Okay. Lay it on you. Like Marmite Peanut Butter. So at DG Hughes twenty eight, Dan Hughes. Hello. He sent us a question. Hi. It's quite a simple one. And it is Is a ten slash ten game possible? Now I assume by that he means a ten out of ten game. Um Is it possible? Um, I mean, it is possible, yeah. It is possible, hasn't happened. It has happened.
1: Uh, no, actually, you know, actually, hang on, hang on, I take that back. It has happened, it is possible, but it's also subjective to the person making that decision. Go on. So, I may play a game, I mean, I don't think I've played a game that's a proper 10 out of 10. The closest I've come. It's probably one of the uncharted games or the last of us that's the closest I've come to a 10 out of 10 game.
0: So what makes a 10 out of 10 game for you?
1: Uh there's no set type of game, it's the experience that I have with it. Um the reason it's the reason I probably say I've not had a 10 out of 10 game is there might be niggling things or tiny little features and for me a 10 out of 10 game has to be flawless. Because if you if it, if it, if you can't fault a single thing about it then it has to be 10 out of 10. And similarly if you can fault anything about it it can't be it can be nine nine is fine but it can't be 10 out of 10 because 10 out of 10 means there is not a single problem with it now mm. obviously that is possible but it's subjective for each individual person because what i deem to be a problem you may not deem to be a problem you may not recognize that problem and so for you you may see it as a flawless game whereas i see a flaw that is subjective to how i enjoy the experience of playing a game so that's why I think it's possible but rare and subjective. Lots of caveats.
2: It's a very interesting question because what we're what the question is 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 proposing ultimately is can you have something that fires on all cylinders? And actually should you invariably have that? Because if I think about the films that I watch and I like watching, I prefer to watch a four-star film than a five-star film because five-star films generally require a lot of energy to focus on them and it's a very rich kind of banquet that you're sampling there and you can't you can't eat out every night at a very rich restaurant. A four-star film for me is something that I can concentrate on if I want to but equally I can have it in the background and I can go along and enjoy the ride of it I can enjoy the experience of it as opposed to feeling as if I need to be committing everything to it because it is so well and highly regarded let's say and I don't know I quite like games to have that little bit of a flaw a loose thread that's dangling because that's what gets under my skin and that's what keeps it percolating in my brain and wanting to go back and revisit it again I'm more likely to rewatch a four-star film than I am a five-star film but that that's me and as Dan says it's inherently subjective and if we're a 10 out of 10 you're suggesting that it's there's some kind of quantitative manner by which you can tabulate or measure the quality of something whereas what we're talking about here is something experiential which is qualitative it's the quality of that experience so you can have a 10 out of 10 game but your 10 out of 10 game won't be the same as anyone else's mm. uh, here's a list of recent uh, 10 out of tens that
0: popular video game website IGN have given just to give you an idea of what they are giving perfect scores to. Red Dead Redemption 2 um, God of War, Celeste which I might agree with. Super Mario Odyssey, uh, Undertale which is probably the closest game I've played that is a 10 out of 10. It's yeah, incredible. And Metal Gear Solid 5 The Phantom Pain. Wow. Um, which, yeah, I was once a actual video game critic. Like, I did some stuff for video game websites and things and actually reviewed them. And my personal opinion was that a 10 out of 10 game wasn't a signifier that it was a flawless game because I don't think... I agree with you, Dan. I don't... Firstly... I don't think a perfect game exists and I also think it's when you're giving something a 10 out of 10 to me that is something spe- that has to signify something special to everyone who enjoys video games so the way I always looked at it is if I if I was going to give a game a 10 a perfect score it was because that game was doing something so incredibly special and unique and doing it in a really polished and uh compelling way that giving it 10 was almost an action that would elevate it above everything else so therefore give it some more attention does that make sense
1: uh, yeah i mean i I, rem- I remember you giving a perfect score to a game did i yeah Which one? You gave a perfect score to Rayman Origins.
0: No, I gave it 9 out of 10.
1: Are you sure?
0: Yeah, because I can remember (laughs) the reasons why I gave it 9 out of 10. So Rayman Origins was nearly a close 10 out of 10 game for me. And because I felt that giving it a 10 would mean that people would almost take it seriously and think that, yeah, this must be something really unique, really compelling a really interesting, which at the time it was. I called it the first symphony ever written for video games. But where I didn't give it a 10 is that Rayman Origins tries to tell a story, but it never manages to tell that story in any coherent way.
1: You did give it 9 out of 10, I just checked.
0: Yeah. Damn it. And I know. If it had got rid of the story... Or just had a story that was a little bit in the background, or wasn't really showing that much attention, then yeah, I just would have given it. I would have given it a ten. But the fact it attempted to do something and neglected it, then I felt that like that was an oversight of the design of the game, and in a way hampered the experience of it. Because at the end of the game, there's this big reveal, and I was like, "Who the hell is that?"
1: It's <laughs> not what you're looking for, really. In a
0: reveal. This game is this game is incredible. It's 10 out of 10, and then suddenly, who are you, and why should I care why I'm ch- Why am I chasing after you? And I had, no, I had no cause, even though the game thought that the story was good enough that by that time I would have been like, "Huh, I knew it was you. Now I'm going to take you down and just like so that was my reason.
2: Um, are, are there any games that because obviously um, invariably over time? your review your your number the metric you would ascribe to a game would probably depreciate because what was like the pinnacle of you know graphics at a given point if we're talking about video games for example was a 10 at that point relatively speaking may not be now but are there any games in which you've you've given it a, a number but actually thinking back actually it's it's kind of increased in its quality mm-hmm. it might have been that it caught you at the right time in your life and you look back on that particularly fondly it wasn't just the actual game itself, but the actual experience around it, the context it was within, let's say, that has made that increase in quality in your eyes.
1: I think that's an important point. And I think it's not just about games. As you mentioned, it's kind of films, it's TV, it's books, it's everything. A lot of it will depend on the point in time of when you are experiencing that thing. Now, that could be. Uh, elements like kind of graphics and stuff which do change over time but it could just be I played it in a time where I was really down and this game lifted me and similarly you you will play a game later on that surpasses it and so when you go back to play that same game that seemingly was perfect before you're seeing the flaws that you perhaps didn't see first time around because you didn't know at the time that they could be done much better over time that 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 feeling can depreciate but also kind of if you haven't watched it again, your kind of feelings can grow towards it. My feelings about Shenmue. I, play, I played it for ages and then I hadn't played it for years. And just what I have in the back of my head isn't the game. Isn't the actual physical game. It's the experience of playing it when I was young. That's what I hold in my head. And that's what I judge that game on. So when I play it again now, I see all of the flaws. And I mean, it's a very old game when you compare it to new games this year. the New games that are coming out now there are many big flaws in those games. Um, But when I think about my experience of them, I don't think about when I played it two months ago. I think about when I played it on the Dreamcast and it was this behemoth, this kind of incredible experience that I kind of just was blown away by. And that's, I think, the point you're touching on in in terms of the context of when you experience something affects how you can judge it. And so your, your decisions can change over time, depending on your feelings.
2: Oh, sorry, lads. Sorry. I was just, just playing on my new, uh, my new uh, shiny thing that I've bought. <laughs>
1: Have you bought a new shiny thing?
2: I bought a new shiny thing, Dan. Uh, I was one of those people who uh, Nintendo fans tend to describe as a casual gamer. Oh. Because <laughs> I, I went and bought for the very first time in my entire life I bought a piece of gaming hardware on the day it came out, on the day it was released, and I have... Incredible. I know, I've never done that before. I've done that once. What was that, Sam? What was that? It was a Nintendo 3DS. Ah. Well... I don't think I've ever done it. Dan, I've bought the Nintendo Switch Lite. Look at that. Look at that in all its turquoise blue. Beautiful, beautiful teal. It is. And honestly, Dan, that was the thing I undenied about the most, was the colour. Believe it or an not. Yeah. And uh and it is actually, as it says in the title, it is very light. And <laughs> it feels it, it is it is the cutest thing I own, without a doubt. It is adorable. You just want to pick it up. It's like it's it's like um a newborn baby's there, and you just want to hold it and say, Oh, look at you, you're beautiful. Oh, it's adorable. Um, you've got your father's eyes, and 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 yeah, this is what I've got here with some <laughs> N- Nintendo Switch lights um it feels really nice and robust sam you've seen it and sam and sam was Uh actually invaluable for me in this whole process because i've heard sam and pete talk a lot about having those nice relaxing experiences that they have on the go those kind of portable game experiences and i don't have that i do some mobile gaming on my phone but i always get a little bit frustrated because my phone's never really up to scratch when it comes to mobile games and i really wanted to have that portable game experience which is something i don't usually have because the types of games i like to play are really on consoles i like to see them on a the big screen and uh, i don't want to get frustrated that i can't quite make things out and I was, and i've realized in the last few years i've started playing more story-led relaxing kind of games that don't need to be on a big screen on a sofa that you can actually play on the move and i'm just so in awe of this switch Lite. And Sam's very kindly let me Mario Kart, which originally I would have been like, no way. I can't play Mario Kart portable. That's not going to work. I'm just going to crash and things. But it is fantastic. Um, we went shopping the other day. Um, I, I said to my partner, can you drive? Um, Chris, me Switch. no. Yeah. No. Whipped at me Come Switch. Come on.
1: Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. You got your partner to drive so you could drive Mario Kart while she was driving. Yeah.
2: Honestly, Dan, I felt so sick afterwards. But incredible! I, just because I could. That day you got the Switch—a hell of a day to be
0: to be a Switch owner. The twentieth of September. Not only did the Switch light come out, but also *Legends of Zelda: Link's Awakening*. Yep. And *Untitled Goose Game*. Oh my! Gosh. All dropped on the same day. And *Untitled Goose Game* was not on my radar. I mean, right. I heard about it, and yeah. I saw I saw some funny clips on the internet. I'm like, ha, ha, ha. but the switch being the switch. All right. All right. I'll I'll give that a go. And me and you, Chris, both bought Untitled Goose Game.
2: Yep. And not look back. Nope. <laughs> My God. It's it, it is. I mean, how do you describe this game? This is from House House, an Australian company. I think it's their yeah. second game. Um, Dan, you've played a lot of stealth games haven't you? You've played Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> I've, I've played my fair share. you played Hitman? Yeah.
1: I have played Hitman.
2: Have you ever wondered what Hitman would be like if he was a goose?
1: You know, actually, weirdly, I have. <laughs>
2: that's Untitled Goose game it's, for it's you. the one thing I've always thought yeah. was
1: missing from the Hitman uh, franchise. Goose mode. I think
2: Kotaku, in their review, called it Metal Goose Solid, which I quite liked.
1: I feel like Metal Geese Solid would be better.
2: Oh, that's even better, Dan. <laughs> uh, you're in uh, an English village... And essentially, you are a goose. All you can do as this goose is pad around, swim, flap your wings, bend down to hide in bushes and pick stuff up with your beak. You've got no opposable thumbs. So the only thing you can grab, you can only really hold one thing at once in your little beak. And you basically walk around this village running amok, causing as much mischief as possible. In each little area of this village you'll be able to access this hand-drawn shopping list of things you've got to do that's been done with a biro on a piece of notepaper. And it will be things like um, steal the groundskeeper's keys, make him wear his son hat, trap a child in a phone box. Get on TV was also one of my favourites
0: recently, which is brilliant. The lists that you have are exceptionally well written in a way that they really get you to think about what you're going to have to do. So when it's just like, get on TV, and you're just like, w- like come on. So you really have to just sometimes just sit there and watch what's happening. Like watch what a certain NPC does in the area, what kind of animation loops they get into and think about how you can disrupt and change those things in order to create other little um, patterns happening and sort of not create sort of knock-on effects in order to get your achievements so that means that it's not just really a game about going in and being for want of a better phrase a bull in a china shop and like creating havoc you really have to think about what steps you're going to be taking in terms of actually solving this puzzle and being like a a really bullish goose and just like running in and trying to create havoc won't actually get you anywhere. You've got to be very considered and you've got to rely on stealth. Yeah. In order to, to pull off your certain things. And it's that wonderful balance of stealth where, where sometimes you're getting away with something right under the nose of a character. Like when I was able to steal the groundsman's keys off their belt without them noticing it and lock them in their own garden was superb. But on the level I've just played, when I was stealing a bra from a clothesline, and the woman was running after me, and I was like, "Go, go, 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 come on, come on, come on, come on, get the bra, get the bra, get the bra," and like was able to jump into the next garden that she couldn't follow me. It's like those two levels of stealth—like one way you're getting away with it and no one notices, and the one way you just get away from it, like the the person chasing after you. Like that wonderful balance is very—it's very rare in a lot of stealth games. Like some of them are just like nope, you failed, start again, or don't have that satisfying feeling of really being able to feel like you can get away with stuff.
2: But Untitled Goose Game manages to get that balance perfectly. But it's interesting because, you know, in Metal Gear Solid, you're you're there to save the world. Um, You can't help but think in Untitled Goose Game, you're just a bit of a dick. Like, I I basically... (laughs) nick a child's glasses and swapped them with another yeah. set. So he was just wandering yeah. around without any glasses. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh! And then you think, well, who wrote this list? Because clearly the goose didn't. Has somebody trained this goose <laughs> to go yeah. and run amok? You'll get so into the kind of granule, as you say, Sam, of learning the patterns. Like in the Great Escape, you're in a prison and learning the warden's routine, so yeah. you know the optimal point by which to to escape. And then suddenly you're thinking, hang on, I'm a goose. And because you're a goose, you can't help but swagger as you move. You just can't help but do it. I like the idea of kind of like
1: this goose kind of walking around this quaint little English village, just terrorizing the occupants. And I can't help but feel it's some kind of like twisted prequel to Everyone's Gone to the Rapture. And that was the reason. (laughs) That was the reason they left.
2: People are already starting to game this game in really interesting ways, really. And it is light, it is unassuming, it's a very short and breezy game, but it is so much fun to play.
0: That was staying in with myself, Sam Turner, Chris Darby and Daniel Frost. Once again, a massive thank you to everyone at Schmidtspiel and Coiled Spring Games for all the help they gave us getting our Taverns of Tiff and Thaw review ready. For all of you to hopefully enjoy Get It, it's an incredible game. The best thing that you can do now is, of course, subscribe to the show if you haven't already. It's the easiest way to make sure you get the next one direct to you as soon as it comes out. Also, tell your friends, family, colleagues, co-workers, associates, your solicitors and window cleaners about the Staying In podcast. We really enjoy what we do, uh, getting to share the things that we're currently loving about The Great Indoors with everyone. So... The more people who get to hear it, the better. If you want to send us a question, then Twitter at StayingInPod. Instagram also, StayingInPod, which has some gorgeous photos on it going up uh, quite regularly. And StayingInPodcast.com is our website where you can find out more details of how you can get in touch with us. Our Steam and Board Game Geek curator pages, as well as tons of other things. So why not take a look there when you've got a spare five minutes? It's been an absolute pleasure.